You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. The episode I released last week was a re-release from the fall of 2019 called Is My Niche Too Narrow? It's an on-air coaching call with a yoga teacher who is worried that she's pigeonholing herself with a niche that's too limited. But in a surprise twist, she ends up revealing that she's been offered a book contract from a publisher and is also trying to figure out how to fit writing that book into her busy life. Today's episode is the update from Kate Lynch, who shares what it was like to write a book during the pandemic and how her process evolved over the three years it took her to get from idea to published. If you haven't yet listened to the episode I released last week, I recommend pausing here and listening to that one first. If you have listened, let's jump right into this conversation with Kate Lynch, and I will see you on the other side. Was it two years ago that you were on the podcast? It was three. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it was 2019. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And at the time, that episode was called, Is Your Niche Too Narrow? That was the question you came to me with. Yes. Is my niche too narrow? Right. At the time, you just run a retreat. Do you remember this? The farm retreat? Yes. Yes. And... I asked you how it went, and you said something like, well, I'm glad I did it, but, and then it came out that there were all kinds of things that were crazy about it, like the rainstorm and the animal noises and stuff like that. (laughs) I know that you have run several more retreats since then, Yes, and I'd love to hear how they went, and I think that at least some of them felt a lot more successful to you, and I'm curious about what the difference was. Oh my God, yes. And the biggest difference is finding a place where I really felt partnered. And it's called the Himalayan Institute. It's been around for like 40 some odd years. And they are professionals. They know how to host people. It's a yoga-focused place. And I signed up for one right before the pandemic. And then we had to defer it for a year. I signed up to basically rent the room for the weekend. And then it was like June of 2021 when things were opening back up, but there hadn't been any next waves yet. And that kept selling out. And then they would offer me a bigger space and then it would sell out and they would offer me a bigger space until finally, like we were in the largest space in the whole retreat center. And the retreat was... I think really powerful and transformational for a lot of people, but also just stepping back out into the world after the pandemic was very vulnerable and heart opening. The other thing I did was I got a little more focused (laughs) with who I was inviting and what I was going to teach. So I got much more specific on what I was going to teach. And then this place, the Himalayan Institute has really good SEO. So I had a calendar thing on their website and they just, that's where most of the registrations kind of poured in from. 
One of the themes that came up a lot during our last conversation was anxiety. Mm-hmm. You talked a lot about the, how you've been living with it for a long time and how it's affected your teaching and the way that you approach your business. And I'm curious for an update if you've had new insights or shifts in your relationship to anxiety since the last time we spoke. Well, it hasn't gone away. (laughs) And I think there's a lot, there are a lot of gifts to my anxiety. And I think I'm able to lean into those gifts a bit more and to know what I need and when I need it in order to manage. I don't even know if manage is the right word, but to see, this is a perfect example. Like I think in the past I would have felt so nervous and not paused, you know, not paused to really think about what I'm trying to say. And I would have just talked. And I've gotten a little better at just pausing and trying to feel beneath the the fluttering heart and the, you know, butterflies in my stomach to what the truth is underneath. So because I'm anxious and I, you know, have this diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder, which came much later in life, but because of that, I understand other people who are more, maybe more deeply feeling, more intense, have anxiety, and, and I can share what has helped me with that. It sounds like the path you're on is befriending the anxiety and learning to live with it more skillfully. Yes, befriending and even embracing. During our last conversation, we talked a bit about your niche and you were dancing around and exploring whether or not to work with parents of neurodivergent children. How has your niche evolved since that conversation? Where are you at with it now? I'm still riding the fence a bit, and I know that is probably making it take longer to grow. However, there are people in my community who I want to support who are not parents and not parents of neurodivergent kids. And I have a lot of gifts that can support them. They're generally more empathetic, deeply feeling people who want to make a difference in the world, but kind of get stuck because they, they hit overwhelm. So there's that niche and they do overlap. And then there's the parents of neurodivergent kids who might be the same type of people, right? Who are more empathetic and deeply feeling. And this is hard for them, right? Because it's hard. And, you know, what was underlying with both of these groups is the need for self-regulation, the need for non-judgment, and the need for connection, feeling safe, feeling heard, feeling seen, feeling supported. Yeah. So that's what I'm leaning into these days because I'm really good at that. I love that because in my mind, the niche is not a magic wand and it's not a pigeonhole. Right. It's a tool. Right. 
It's a tool to help you clarify your messaging. And that's what I'm finally getting to is like sometimes because I'm such a multi-passionate person, very creative, who wants to do a lot of things, I felt pigeonholed by a niche and I felt kind of pushed or stuck. And then I would rebel and not do what I was quote unquote supposed to do, which was follow my plan. So I found a way to like make a plan, follow my plan and still feel free to share my gifts with those who are open to them and going to pay me. <laughs> you just said, I found a way to follow my plan. And I'm curious how you would describe that way. Well, I need a lot of visual support and I need reminders in my ear that, okay, this, this little rabbit hole you're going down is cool, but you can do this in the next quarter or next week even. You've got a deadline coming up. This is not the rabbit hole for right now. <laughs> so I kind of talk to my inner teenager a lot. So is that several sides of you holding you accountable or is there outside accountability involved there too? Both, yeah. So I think I've internalized some of the outside accountability, things that you've said in the Impact Club and in our quarterly planning meetings that I really look forward to because I'm like, okay, I'm going to do my quarterly planning. <laughs> And it's really important. It's been extremely valuable. Recently, you shared with me that during our last episode that we recorded together, I talked to you about my experience of paying people to hold me accountable. And that's not necessarily what I tell them I'm paying them for, but I'm investing in this structure for accountability. And you told me that when I said that to you, that you had a strong, visceral negative reaction to that <laughs> <laughs> and that your thinking has evolved since then. So I would love to hear both about that initial reaction as much as you are able to describe it now three years later and also the evolution, the journey that you've gone on since then. Okay. So I'm going to be totally honest. I had been listening to your podcast, but I hadn't been in your world that long. And I had just joined your Facebook group and you put out a call to you know, who wants an on-air coaching call, free coaching call, like totally me. And then because I knew the value of what you offer, there was part, probably not the front facing part, but there was part of me somewhere who was like, what's the catch, right? This is too good to be true. <laughs> <laughs> so when you said I pay people to hold me accountable, part of me was like looking for that pitch and looking for that, oh, that's the catch. You know? <laughs> so since then, I think that planted a seed that it is important to invest in whatever way, shape or form that comes in is going to be different for all of us at each stage of our lives. And I saw by joining the Impact Club how helpful it is to really, it's like put your money where your mouth is, like take it seriously. And that changed my mindset. And so now I'm more open to that with other mentors and service providers and people who are going to help me get the message to more people because I really believe that they need the message that I'm offering. And there are certain things I'm really not very good at. 
So I just have to really acknowledge that. Same. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think it is important to hear the message about investing from somebody who doesn't gain from it because of that trust issue. And for me, the honor coaching calls are really, the value that I receive is just the content. Right. So, yeah, I know that now. But I don't blame you for thinking that. Like, I am actually very grateful to hear it because we so rarely get to go below the surface of people's surface reactions. Yeah. And I know that communication is, on some levels, I'm good at it, and that some levels, the neurodivergence sets in, and I miss a lot. So... I find myself being really fascinated by honesty and upfrontness, especially about those things that are more uncomfortable to talk about. Right. So anyway, thank you for being so upfront about that. Because You're welcome. I, re- I really think it's interesting. And I, I know that it doesn't reflect on me personally. Yeah. I know it was about like what was going on in your head. It was honestly, it was like my own scarcity mindset that was coming up. Yeah, But it has taken these three years and, you know, we have built a relationship in those three years. So that makes it much easier for me to see in myself and also to verbalize to you. Yeah. That message and also the, even the term scarcity mindset, it can be very slimy and unethical if it comes from somebody who's trying to sell you something. Because it really needs to come from the inside, this recognition of, I am choosing to invest, and it is my responsibility what comes from that investment. When somebody tells you that, and they're expecting you to invest in them, then there becomes this transactional expectation where like, they're supposed to deliver something, the accountability, right? But actually, the accountability is internal. It's mm-hmm. your choice to invest that provides the accountability. So if it's done out of this place of fear of like, oh, this person told me and it's going to be like this magical thing. If I invest, then I'm going to experience this magical thing and I have to trust this person. That's not going to work. That's actually going to bring up more fear and more resistance. When it works is when it comes from your own intuition and your own gut feeling of, I need to take myself seriously. And this feels like a step towards that. Right. Yeah, that's such a good reminder. During our last episode that we recorded together, you had just, you hadn't signed a book deal, but you had just been contacted about the possibility of writing a book. Yeah, it was very early days. Like I had sent an email saying to this publishing company saying, hey, I have an idea. And they had written me back saying, we like your idea, send us a proposal. And then I did the podcast with you. That was where I was at. And I was like, but that was the proposal. They're like, no, no, no. (laughs) A proposal is not just one paragraph. It's like a whole thing. So catch us up. What happened next? (laughs) I guess I tried to write a proposal. I did some research and got kind of 100 pages out really quick of mainly lists of things I wanted to include in the book. And then I got kind of overwhelmed. And then COVID happened. 
And I was still very motivated to write the book. And one of the things that was really motivating was that I had said I was going to write the book on this podcast. (laughs) I felt like I couldn't back out after that. And I had a teacher who, uh, right around that same time, I went to her book launch, Sean Korn's book launch. And she was like, who, you know, do you have a book in you? And I I was like the first one to raise my hand. And she's like, points, it means like, write that book. (laughs) And I was sort of on my own trying to figure out how to even write a proposal. And then because of COVID, one of my students was also out of a job and she offered to help. And I paid her very little. She's sort of like one of the angels that came in and helped me with the proposal because she's in my niche and she gave me lots of feedback and we went back and forth and it was just an amazing process. So I got an actual proposal together and I sent the proposal to the original publisher and they said, oh, that person doesn't work here anymore. And I was like, oh, that's not going to happen then. And I've got this proposal and they're like, well, we're going to think about it, consider it anyway. So they considered it. They said, we're willing to offer you a contract. And I was like celebrating, jumping up and down. That was February, 2021. And then we negotiated the contract that took a really long time. We signed the contract and I basically had like a month to get the book or two, one or two months to get the book in. So it was October that I got the book in by the deadline. And then it just sat there. There was more I could have done. I would have been happy to like keep working on it, but you know, I had been advised, like, once you upload the book and you submit the manuscript, you're done. And then I found out that, like, the editor who had been assigned to me had also left. So people were leaving this publisher. And I wasn't sure what was going to happen because of COVID. It's, it's kind of an educational specialty publisher, like an indie publisher, small. But they pulled through and they, this summer, they're like, here, we have a new editor for you. And we started working on the book. And now it's being launched November 8th. Wow, that sounds so hard to have to wait so long. It's like, hurry up and wait, right? I really wanted to keep working on it, but I couldn't. I guess the silver lining is it gave me time to have some perspective on the book when I did pick it back up this summer. And I went through really with a fine-tooth comb and reworked it. And then I also hired someone who I really trust who just happened again, like an angel just happened to be available. And she, you know, she helped me get it down. It was like 500 pages and I knew I wanted it like no more than 300 pages. So she really helped me cut it down. What was it like for you to go through your own story and figure out which parts of it to share? Good question. It was cathartic and it was sometimes super raw. And I just stayed really focused on being of service. And even at the end, I mean, I needed to cut a lot. So some of the stories just weren't as helpful. So I just kept kind of directing back to what's helpful, what's carrying this arc of this particular story along and what is extra. Because I have so many stories. So it's just figuring out which ones are most helpful, I guess. And was it important to get outside perspectives on that? Or was that something that you sort of were able to figure out on your own? 
I love having outside perspective. I'm much more of a collaborator, I think. And that's why I never really wanted to work solo. Like, you know, I went to art school, but I didn't really want to be just like an artist in a studio. And I've always wanted to write. But the idea of just sitting and writing without having a dialogue about it has been the hard part for me. So I like writing short pieces and then getting feedback on them and then updating them. So a long project like this was, yeah, a lot of times I kind of felt like I was floating in the wind and not really having anything to anchor me. So eventually you did hire somebody to help you. How did that change things for you? I felt much more supported. <laughs> and, uh, and like I felt like I was taking myself more seriously and I had to be accountable to them. And I, you know, once I had invested and I knew that they were doing the work, it just, yeah, it felt more serious. Both of these so far were like short term. They weren't like someone consistently working with me over a long period of time with the book. Like, I think with many publishers, that's how it would be. <laughs> but this one, it wasn't like that. You know, it was kind of like, get it back to us when it's done. <laughs> you know? So you had a little bit of help that you hired and it allowed you to take yourself more seriously. It sounds like it brought energy to the project and maybe it even helped you see what it would be like to do a bigger project as more of a collaboration. Do you think that's the case? Is that something that you would look for in the future? I think that would be ideal for me. I do have to say the other thing that helped me was, well, being in the Impact Club because I knew I had set goals, I had made commitments, the commitments were to myself, but I knew I was going to be like, coming in, talking to the group about it. And so we talked about it in the Impact Club a couple of times. Like, well, how could you break down this giant goal of writing this book into chunks that feel a little less overwhelming? And that really helped me a lot. And how did you do that? A lot of things helped a little. Like the idea of every day was the same time. Like after Ocean went to bed, I would write at least for some time. Even if it was just a short time, that was the thing. He went to bed, I would write. The other thing that really helped, I have to say, I realized this, deadlines. <laughs> like knowing that deadline was looming and this, this more recent deadline now of having it completed with the editing process. Wow, I can keep my butt in a chair for like a super long time <laughs> when I know there's a hard deadline. Yeah, that's kind of a neurodivergent trait, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> I was reflecting this past week or weekend recently on the same thing about how motivating it is to have a deadline. So it sounds like for you, and I think this is the case for many people, it wasn't a case of one thing was the magic pill, but more that you take all of these different strategies and techniques and you you put them together and they scaffold you. Right. Yeah. And I need a lot of scaffolding. For well, sure. I mean, I think that anybody who wouldn't need a lot of scaffolding to write a book would be a very unusual person. Very different person from me, that's for sure. <laughs> and I know that I have gifts that those kind of people probably don't have. So... Yes, it was like a huge project for me with my particular traits 
to write a book, like this giant project. It was just so much executive function that it takes to organize it. But because I have all these other qualities that I think are helpful, I'm really glad that I did it because I think now there's this there's this body of work that not only can I draw from and I use as a marketing tool, right? But also it's going to really help a lot more people than I could reach just either one-to-one or in small groups. So I'm very, very proud of it. As you should be. If you think about the number of people who want to write a book or feel that they have a book in them, compared to the number of people who actually end up even with a manuscript. Yeah. It's an accomplishment. Yeah. And then when I realized it was going to be 500 pages and they had really wanted more like 250 pages, I was like, oh, whoops. Because <laughs> <You know? laughs> I tend to over-deliver. You know, I tend to over-prepare, over-deliver, over, overdo things. What does it feel like internally to have done something that you know is a really big challenge for you personally and yet is also very meaningful for you. I mean, there's relief and there's a sense of stepping into a deeper level of leadership, I would say. There's a little fear around really needing to grow up now and definitely pride that I that I did this and celebration throughout the book, but especially the end of the book, is very much about, hey, you've got to celebrate these milestones. And I tend not to celebrate like the little milestones in between, even though I say it's important. But right now I am celebrating. <laughs> Definitely. I'm really glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. What advice would you give anyone listening who thinks to themselves, I have a book in me. I really have a book. I really want to make this happen. Well, this is something I think you at some point you were like, write it as a blog. And I think that's what I would do next time. I would just start writing one blog post after another blog post. And whether I actually sent those out into the world or not, they become the chapters. And I think it would be much easier to organize rather than going in and being like, oh, well, this story from this blog could fit in here, which is what I was doing. I was doing a lot of cutting and pasting because I kind of decided on the arc of the story, how I wanted it to go and the structure of it. But then I had like these stories I wanted to plug in and I ended up having some like whole paragraphs repeated in places and it was just a little chaotic. So I would say like to, you know, to have a structure, but then write it more as, as small pieces and then maybe get someone to help you figure out how to turn it into a book. I did just write it, but then I was like, oh no, it needs some structure because it's so big, (laughs) you know? And then because of how I am more kind of neurodivergent thinker or whatever, I was writing things. And then when I wrote them, I would be like, oh, well, this makes sense in the book. So it wasn't as organized a process. I mean, I tried to get feedback a lot and I did have parents who were willing to read the book at various stages of it, and that was super helpful. I would probably next time try to, well, first of all, have someone I'm paying because that does make it more more real in a way and more kind of less blurry in the relationship, right? They're not doing me a favor. 
And you can expect a deadline from them if you're paying them. So there are like these very clear expectations. And I think that definitely would help. And then even paying someone to just have the dialogue about, you know, where it's going and what, what is becoming. Because the book did not turn out as I planned it at first, which I think happens a lot. I'm certainly happier with the book it, that it is now. But it was really going to be more just like, here are some tools for you, because I know you need tools. And now it's more like, this is our story, and these are the tools kind of fit in around the story. Is that something that happened organically, came out of you, or is that something that the people you hired or the publisher guided you towards? Definitely wasn't the publisher, but I did have a conversation very early on with an editor who has written a couple of yoga books. Her name's Linda Sparrow. And she had just had a phone call with me. And I think she was the one who suggested doing it that way, figuring out what stories would would fit. That's all I remember, really. It was so long ago. So it did end up being taking a lot longer than you expected, didn't it? It did. And then just also just waiting and not knowing was really hard. Like I felt there was a big dip right after being kind of having that feeling of, oh my God, I did this. I turned it in. I turned in this huge manuscript. And then to immediately find out from the editor that she no longer worked there and she didn't know what was going to happen and to not be sure that the company was going to continue. It was a huge disappointment. Then I even had like contacted a lawyer saying like, hey, could I be released from this contract and maybe take it somewhere else? But then they came through. So I remember you saying that you were afraid you wouldn't finish the book. And now you have. Yeah. How has following through on this dream changed the way you see yourself or your relationship to yourself? That is really a hard one. (laughs) It seems so simple, but it's not because there are so many layers to it. I mean, I could just spout out, oh, I feel more confident because I overcame this. I can overcome that. But honestly, like I had to ask for a lot of support and I was lucky enough to have that support. The pandemic didn't make it easier for me to write a book. It made it much harder for me to write a book. Unlike some people I saw online who were like, oh, I wrote a book over the pandemic because I had nothing to do. My life was so much harder during the pandemic because I had an autistic kid at home who could not, you know, really could not do online learning. And, you know, of course, my husband was also at home (laughs) working and he dictates every email. So I asked for a lot of grace and help and support. And I think it was the the vision and the mission and the people who were reading it along the way and saying, yeah, it actually is good. And this message does need to get out, out there. This is important. And those times when your things like fall into place and you're like, oh, well, because things are falling into place, I have the courage to take that next step. Because this fell into place, I had the courage to take that next step. And I really was not willing to give up on this project, even when it got super hard. I was just totally unwilling. So I asked for a lot of help. I asked for a lot of support, and I got it. And it took a really long time. Did you already recognize that you're a very stubborn person? 
And I say that in like the most complimentary of ways. (laughs) (laughs) I have always been an incredibly stubborn person. That is definitely one of my traits. And I'm, you know, I'm willing to pivot. I'm willing to change directions, but it's not because I'm giving up. That's always been the case for me. Like that combination of flexibility and stubbornness. So it sounds like you almost found the vulnerable side to your stubbornness. Hmm. It feels that way right now. That's really cool. Yeah. I feel like I owe you an apology because at the end of that first episode, I asked you if there was anything else. And you said, I need some help figuring out how to increase my income. And listening back, I was like, gosh, I kind of side- sidestepped that question. And I said, basically, to not focus on that right now. But I don't think that was respectful. I think it, I think I could have handled it more skillfully. I think I was running low on time. And I, I knew that I didn't have the time to get into that. But I wish I had just said that. Hmm. Because I feel like I just kind of avoided it. <laughs> Well, it's a totally different topic. And we had just had this whole entire <laughs> conversation about my niche and then about like honing in on my niche through mediums, small and large, like the book. And yeah, and that was definitely my fear coming out. I mean, I did need to work on the income part. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to acknowledge that recognition because. We all have room for growth, and I certainly do. Yeah. I mean, I've seen it. <laughs> and I've learned so much from it. It's, it's definitely that vulnerability that you're willing to share that has been the most impactful, even with all the like wisdom you share, but that's been the most impactful for me. I mean, I've always been vulnerable. I'm vulnerable. But to share that with my students in a way that is skillful, that's something I've learned from you. Thank you. Thank you. One other thing I wanted to touch base about is that concept that we talked about of putting writing the book at the center of all your content creation. I'm curious how that went for you? Were you able to do it? Did it work to make more space for the writing and to kind of reduce your workload and all that other stuff? I think to the extent that I took your advice, it did. And being the stubborn person that I am, I didn't always do it that way. And the more I could do it, the, I think the better it was. And then I also had like people sort of saying, oh, well, a publisher may not want to take just blog posts that you've already released and publish them in a book. But people do that all the time, to be honest. So I was kind of reticent about publishing elsewhere, even little chunks of the book, but I did do it anyway. And I would just change it a little bit and do it. Definitely made things easier. And there, you know, when I'm rereading the book, I keep finding things. I'm like, oh, this would make a great post. Yeah. And I find that all my writing or all writing always has room for refinement. 
So if you put something out there as a blog post and then you take it and you put it into a book, it's almost always going to change in the book because the book has more rounds of editing. So that's more what I'm thinking is that the blog post, the podcast, all that stuff is a rougher version and then it gets refined into the published bound copy. Right. And, you know, I keep learning new things. So I keep putting new things in and refining the message. But another thing, just leading on from that, that we talked about is I had all these different hubs of content. And, you know, it did become clearer and clearer that I couldn't maintain all those different hubs of content. So I did double down on the blog emails. And now I've gotten away from Facebook completely. I put out a little like capsule of podcasts at a time. And don't beat myself up if I'm not like creating content weekly on every single platform. So the podcast ends up getting published also as a YouTube video. And I just make stuff as I go and not worry about it. But I do try to be consistent with the blog. That sounds like huge growth. Yeah. Where you were three years ago. Totally. I was really trying to do all the things, but I wasn't doing any of them often enough to make a difference. And I think I'm still there. I have a lot of room for growth there. And now that you have the book, now that the book is off your plate, I'm not going to say you have a ton of time, but you have that energy at least freed up and you can still create content from the book. Right. Just take a theme from the book and you create a new piece of content from it, but all the ideas are already there and you get to continue to refine your message. Which is so cool. (laughs) So what's next for you, Kate? Next is the marketing part of the process. And this is another place I'm investing in someone who will help me with this book marketing because I really have no idea how to do that. And I know it's important. Have you found someone? Yeah, I found someone. It was like a recommendation from uh, another parent on an email list who I might also hire, who's a publicist. I don't know. So do you think if you knew then how long it would take, what the process would be, would you still have done it? Yes. Do you think you'll ever write another book? Yes. I can't wait to write another book. Don't ask me what (laughs) it's going to be about. (laughs) I mean, what I'd like to do is take this book and turn it into a workbook that just has the tools. And I think they would be open to that. That's awesome. I think that's a brilliant idea. I love it. Yeah, I want to repurpose as much as possible. And I'm also going, I've got to do the audio book. So I want to record that with my own voice. I don't want to outsource that. Then I want a place for the people who buy the book who want to work with me to land. So creating a community, having courses, retreats, whatever. It's all, it's all just still up in here, but kind of trying to create the infrastructure for that. So exciting, Kate. If listeners are interested in finding the book, getting a copy, maybe they have a neurodivergent child or a friend or a relative, where should they go? Or a student? Well, my website is healthyhappyyoga.com. And my Instagram is healthyhappyyoga.com. And then, you know, right now it says, join the, join my book team right on the front of my website. So that's probably the best place to, to go right now. 
Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Yes. And when this episode's released, it'll probably just be a few weeks before the book is published. She said it was November November 8th, the book will be published. Yeah. Okay. And I think that this will probably come out end of October. So, Oh, great. Good timing. Yeah. <laughs> Good timing. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll probably have to do a part three one day. That would be amazing. I can't wait. I have so many ideas. <laughs> Well, it has been such a pleasure to catch up with you and to hear this update and to see your growth. I'm really grateful that you wanted to come back. And I'm curious, before we wrap up, is there anything else you want to share with listeners, either about writing a book or about any insights you've had since the last time we talked on air? Well, writing a book is a really long game. So if you don't have the financial support to back it up, you need to be doing something else at the same time. You can't just sit down and write a book. I had both. I did it part-time while I was also teaching yoga. And I also have the support of my family, my partner. So um, couldn't have done it without them. And without you, Mado. <laughs> I think uh, that's it. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you again, Kate. Thank you. You know that phenomenon where you buy a red Jeep and all of a sudden you see other red Jeeps everywhere? Actually, in my case, I have a silver Subaru Forester, and I swear it's the most common car in Asheville, North Carolina. This might actually be true, but I'm not 100% sure because of this tendency to see what's salient or personally related to us. These days, it seems like more and more people are identifying as neurodivergent. For one thing, the patterns of neurodivergence are becoming more widely understood, so people who were functional enough to fly under the radar are recognizing neurodivergent character traits in themselves. At the same time, a lot of aspects of our culture, such as easy access to a whole host of dopamine-releasing activities like video games, social media, things like that, contribute to a lot of symptoms associated with neurodivergence. So it's hard to separate these out. And finally, I personally identify with the patterns of neurodivergence. So I'm also primed to notice when people talk about it. Because the very definition of neurodivergence is a description of brain functioning that diverges from what's normal, it's disconcerting to me with how often I see these conversations. And it makes me question. Is this actually a divergence from the norm, or is it normal and just a pattern that we've been taught to suppress and deny because of our culture? Whatever the truth is, I'm personally grateful to have the opportunity to talk about neurodivergence and the patterns that come along with it with other people who get it. It helps me feel less weird, less alone, and a lot more hopeful. I'm super hopeful for the kids who have parents like Kate. I wish I'd been more educated about neurodivergence when my older daughter, who has autism and ADHD, was younger. She is now 20, so she doesn't live with me anymore. She's an adult. She still struggles. And I do my best to support her, but my, my role is more limited now. I try not to waste too much energy on regret. And at the same time, I definitely feel grief for the ways that she and I both struggled when she was younger 
in ways that we might not have needed to if we'd had more understanding, more context, and more tools. Whether you're a parent to a neurodivergent kid or even if you're a parent at all, I believe we can all benefit from improving our ability to self-regulate. This was not a skill set that was emphasized when I was growing up. And in hindsight, I now see it as being foundational to our growth as a culture and as a species. So the cool thing about Kate's book is that you don't need a diagnosis to benefit from the information inside. If you have a kid that you perceive to be a bit more intense, sensitive, or strong-willed than you were expecting, Kate's book is for you. Many parenting books focus on how to work with the child, but Kate's book helps you to regulate your own nervous system so that you are better prepared to support and even enjoy these intense, sensitive, strong-willed people that we are gifted to be in relationship with. I hope you'll get yourself a copy, and I hope you'll gift one to anyone in your life who you think might benefit. As yoga teachers, we have a unique opportunity to educate and support our students on the same topic of nervous system regulation. The slow-moving internal focus that is emphasized in many types of yoga are the exact circumstances needed to develop sensitivity and skill in working with our nervous systems. Of course, in order to do this well, we need to start with ourselves. How can you use your practice to build these skills for yourself? And over time, how can you get better at calling upon them when life gets challenging? My invitation for you this week is to pay attention to the subtle shifts in your nervous system throughout the day. Anytime that you notice that you are getting more activated than is helpful for the circumstance, see if you can find even just a few moments to pull away and dip into a practice. One that works really well for me is slow breathing with a focus on expansion and relaxation of my entire torso. So I get the sense as I inhale that my breath is pushing out and shape-changing the entire circumference of my rib cage and my belly and my pelvic floor. And all those same areas are softening and relaxing as I exhale. So if you're not sure what practice you might call upon, you're welcome to use that one. Or if you have another practice you know works for you, then do that, of course. That's all for this week. That's all for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening, and thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.